Hi, I'm Michael Weber, Artistic Director of Chicago's Porchlight Music Theater. Welcome to the Movie Musical Monday podcast. This series of recorded conversations explores all our favorite film musicals, from Broadway adaptations to Hollywood originals, as our rotating hosts and guest conversationalists open a discussion in which you are invited to participate. Today's movie musical is the 1950 film adaptation of the 1946 Broadway production Annie Get Your Gun, with an all-star cast including Betty Hutton, Howard Keel, Louis Calhoun, Keenan Wynn, Ben A. Venuta, J. Carol Nash, and Edward Arnold. Today's host is actor Jason Richards, who has appeared on the Porchlight stage in The Gifts of the Magi, Mac and Mabel, and Anyone Can Whistle, among others. And his guest is Ilya Faye Bodiger, who has appeared with us in Little Me and Gypsy. Let's go to the conversation. Hello, Hello. everybody. It's so <laughs> nice to see everybody's smiling faces. We're going to have so much fun uh, discussing this crazy, crazy musical. One of my favorite um, scores of all time, especially for classic musicals, I think. And um, such an interesting choice because it just has so many deep layers to pull, to pull mm -hmm. apart um, mm -hmm. once you get into the, to the storytelling um, aspect of it. And I think we were talking with Michael before, this might be the first time that a host and a special guest have been on the same Zoom screen um, <laughs> with um, my girlfriend and constant uh, quarantine partner <laughs> over here. She's absolutely obsessive uh, about this show. Mm -hmm. I've known from the first moment that we started dating and I'm mm -hmm. so excited um, to be here. Um, I just want to give, before we jump into it, just a little bit of a background about how I came um, mm -hmm. to the show. My parents, who should be jumping on this call any minute, if not, I'm going to call them. Um, <laughs> but uh, they took me to New York City when I was 19, and I was first uh, starting off in college uh, as a musical theater actor. And they took me to a triumvirate of Broadway shows, the first, of course, being what every young man wants to see as their first Broadway show, Jekyll and Hyde, starring Sebastian Bach. <laughs> um, and, of course, then once I flushed that performance out of my brain uh, forever. We went to go see Kiss Me Kate with Brian Stokes Mitchell and Marin Maisie, but Marin Maisie was out uh, that performance. And I just remember opening up the play ball and pulling out the little sheet of paper telling me that she was out. And I was so angry because I, although I enjoyed the show, I was just like, how can a Tony Award mm -hmm. nominated actress just be out of the show when I paid full ticket price? <laughs> so little 19 year old Jason marched across um, Broadway to the Marquee Theater to the poor girl who was running the box office there. And I was like, is Bernadette Peters going to be in Annie Get Your Gun tonight? <laughs> and she was like, yes, crazy boy. He is going to be, uh, she is going to be in the show tonight. And so I let my parents give her all the money and they um <laughs> they took it and it just changed what I thought of as a Broadway show forever for me just seeing this huge brass brassy brass Broadway star just kill it and the amount of goodwill that was being poured out to her um on stage and it was the first time I'd ever heard entrance applause and it was just like it was it was crazy and um so then after that, my parents brought me the CD 
and I listened to it going back and forth at college. Um, and then I put all of the Frank Butler songs in my book forever and ever as Michael and I'm sure other artistic directors <laughs> in Chicago all know. Um, and then I met Elia and I saw this picture in her apartment and I was like, who is that? <laughs> and I had no idea. I'd never heard of Betty Hutton before in my life. And she was like, have you not seen the movie to Annie get your gun? And I said, no. And she showed it to me immediately mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, told me that it was one of her favorite things of all times. And we got to share that together as one of our first mm -hmm. dates. And um, so I just want to throw it over to you. Why are you so obsessed with this musical? Oh my goodness, Why where to begin? Well, when I was six years old, my dad was doing a community theater production in Kansas City at this beautiful giant outdoor theater. And he played Frank Butler and my dad had never really done any type of theater. And especially this community theater had um, 2000 seats available. So it was a big deal in Kansas City. And um, when he worked on it, it was just magical to all of a sudden my dad became a different person and it was my introduction to theater and then not only that but then he also sang there's no business like show business and um I got the bug and then we got the movie at home and then I saw Betty Hutton and my life changed um there I had never seen a woman be so quirky on stage. You know, I had never seen a woman be so awkward or the way that she wasn't afraid to growl with her voice, but the way that she also wasn't afraid to be delicate with her voice. And I was an awkward little Irish German girl and <laughs> watching her in the beginning with how she looked with her hair that was all wiry and then watching her throughout the movie, all of a sudden she comes into her own and um, she, she was determined and she didn't let anybody stop her, but she also knew what she wanted. And she also wasn't afraid of being in love. So even though I loved Disney Cinderella, there wasn't anything that compared to Frank Butler holding Annie during um, They Say It's Wonderful. And so I fell in love with the movie and the movie has constantly been something that um, I can put back on and I can remember why I decided to become an actress and why I love doing the art that we do. Um, so I love this movie so much and I can't wait to talk with all of you about what you think of this movie. One thing that I will say is that the older that I've gotten, the more of the flaws that I've seen. Um, when I was in second grade, we were studying Native Americans and my second grade teacher let us all pick our Native American name. And I, of course, picked um, Little Sure Shot. And I was so excited. And then all of a sudden she was like, do you know the real story of Annie Oakley? And I started researching and I started reading children's books about Annie Oakley. And I was like, this isn't the story of Annie Oakley. It happened like this. And it was so upsetting to me that that wasn't quite it. So I revisited it again when I was doing AP US history in high school. Um, we got the opportunity to do a biography of our choice and I chose Annie Oakley again. And while I was doing research, again, I was heartbroken because I loved stubborn old Frank. I thought that stubborn, thick-headed, swollen-headed, stiff Frank was just a dreamy, dreamy man. Hmm. And then to find out when I actually did the research that Frank was just a loving, supportive husband was so disappointing because I wanted Annie to have to win him, you know? Upon that, I ended up falling in love with the actual story of Annie Oakley as well and became equally as inspired. Yeah, and, and let's talk about the, the real story of Annie, right? Because yeah. I, Dor Dorothy Fields, mm -hmm. who wrote the, you know, the book and the, the lyrics to Annie Get Your Gun, has said that 
Annie and Frank were about the dullest people in the world. <laughs> She's quoted as as saying that. It's not my my words, it's hers. And that Annie would just sit in her tent and knit for God's sake. So mm-hmm. how <laughs> how do you take this and and you know bring bring that in? Because um also Annie had some other things like she, even though she was known as kind of this feminist hero, there were certain things about it, like she didn't even believe that women should be allowed to vote. Um, up until the end of her life. Mm-hmm. So there are like those those little idiosyncrasies. So this is kind of an unabashedly tall tale. Like, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, they kind of wrote this um, bold dramatization of her life that doesn't have a, a whole lot of truthiness to it. Right? Mm-hmm. Not, not a lot of truth, but it, it's a fable and we'll <laughs> take it for what it is. Beginning with that, when we look at something like an American musical theater piece like this, where we take um, characters like Buffalo Bill Cody and Sitting Bull and Annie Oakley and Frank Butler, it's wild that we can end up um, changing their story completely through a musical like this. But it's fascinating to watch it be taken back. For example, um, with Unsinkable Molly Brown, they ended up looking back on that musical. And recently they had a revival where they rewrote parts of it to fit closer to Molly Brown's actual life. And my prediction is that in the next 50 years, somebody's going to come back and use the music for Manny Get Your Gun and um, fix up some of the issues like um, cutting the number, which has been cut from the revival version of I'm an Indian too, which I can't wait to discuss. (laughs) Um, But it's been fascinating to um, learn so much about this film that I yeah. didn't even know in the past week. And I can't wait to hear what all of you have to say. Yeah. So starting off, uh, what, what, what was kind of your favorite number in the, in the show? Uh, yes. Art. Well, actually I, I'll change your question slightly. My, yeah. what may be my favorite number is one that's not in the movie that was written later is old fashioned wedding, which I love. Oh Yes. Yes, it was uh, written for the 1966 uh, revival when Ethel Merman came back in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic number. It, no, it wasn't written then. It was, oh, it was I'll correct before. us if we're wrong, Michael. It was it was written for the original, but then taken out and then put back in in the 1966 version. No, it was it was specifically written for the 1966 version oh, because okay. they wanted Ethel Merman to have more material when mm-hmm. doing the revival. And it certainly is a song that for anybody who knows Irving Berlin hearkens specifically to a song that he wrote for Call Me Madam mm-hmm. um, and, and has this double counterpoint kind of a thing. So he decided, well, you know, let's just use that device. Everybody loved it there. And everybody thinks it's always been part of the show, but it, but it wasn't. It came much later in the life. Story. Yeah, I just I can't imagine the show without that number. And it. it's just one of my favorites. And I'm also one of my favorite um, little stories is that when um, <laughs> when Ethel Merman went back into the show later in life, uh, they called it Granny Get Your Gun. But uh, yeah, we won't we won't go too much further with that. Um, so I don't think we can go too much farther without discussing the elephant in the room for this movie, which is Judy Garland, mm-hmm. right? Um, originating in the role of Annie um, for MGM and uh, having done two months of work on the show, um, recording multiple numbers um, before she was fired due to exhaustion and some um, drug issues and some some other things like that. So has anybody gotten to see any of Judy's um, numbers from the show? Look at how many hands! 
hands. Okay. Great. Okay. So between Judy and Betty, what do you guys think? Hugh, go ahead and unmute yourself. I would much prefer Judy Garland. Uh, really? I think, yes. Well, looking at the YouTube clips of the two of them doing I'm an Indian too, Betty Hutton is just over the top. But it's also interesting that Busby Berkeley did the choreography for the Judy Garland version. Yes. You can tell he's got his fingerprints all over the place, and it's such a different number. Of course, nowadays, <laughs> you wouldn't see that at all, I'm sure. Michael, if you were to try and do the show, is that part of the license, do you know? Uh, well, there are two... There are two versions of the show available, uh, even though there were actually three versions of the show. And I'll, I'll, I'll let uh, Ilya and Jason talk about maybe the, the first version. Um, they do license the 1966 revival version that was with uh, Ethel Merman and Jerry Orbach and... Um, Ray Middleton. Ray Middleton. And, no, Ray Middleton, I think, was in the, the first one. I remember if he was in the 66, but we'll figure that out. And then they really they also have the uh, the version that uh, Jason was talking about that uh, Bernadette Peters did. So they have two totally different versions of the show, um, which are done. Both of them are done frequently. Uh, the the uh, the 66 version was done at Ravinia uh, just a few years ago with Patty Lapone. So it. Uh, it's still dumb. And that's, a, is that the same version as the revival where it's kind of the show within a show? Um, that would be the version you saw with uh, yeah. uh, Bernadette Peters. The version yes. that they did, the, the 1966 version is pretty much what the movie is for the most, uh, part, except uh, that it has old fashioned wedding. Yes. Yes. But I, what do you, what do you think of those, of those early clips with, with Judy and them? Well, actually, Hugh and I, um, Hugh and I are on polar opposites of that scale. I love how over the top Betty Hutton is, but I also yeah. respect Hugh's point of view, where I think that um, when Judy plays Annie, she comes at it from a very um, honest perspective, and I think and Betty Hutton one hundred percent comes um, over the top and full of it and very goofy, very very goofy and almost and like bigger than life goofy, unreasonably goofy. Oh. Um, but she was also known for being so high energy, and there's a certain way that on the camera, like when she does, you can't get a man. She just like floats throughout the camera. All yeah. the way and like her movements, she just keeps going. She doesn't, yes, yes exactly. Amanda knows that's exactly it. She does the weird leg thing. Or um, one of my favorite moments is when she does, I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night, when she picks up the train of her dress and she puts it between her legs and then she like waddles down and then all of a sudden she turns into like this beautiful goddess going across the floor. She just, she comes at it from, um, she's a personality playing a character. So she's Betty Hutton playing Annie Oakley versus I think that Judy Garland in those clips yeah. comes at it more from being, I think that Judy Garland's a great actress. And, the heads, and I think the that heads she's of, decided to be Annie. Yeah, the heads of studio had pretty much looked at all of her footage and said, 
she hasn't quite found it yet. You know yeah. what I mean? She she didn't even have like the accent going on. They, you know, everybody kind of says she looks very tired and, and ready because Howard Keel at the beginning of production fell off of his horse and, and injured himself. And Judy was supposed to get some time off in between her productions. Uh, and then, you know, Howard Keel was supposed to take on the bulk of it at the beginning. And all of a sudden, all the shifting of, of all of the filming moved to Judy when it was not supposed to. And so she kind of, got caught up in that uh and and just overworked and exhausted and I kind of feel you know you got to feel for her oh of course you got to feel for her I mean it's Judy Garland once (laughs) again Judy Garland got gypped um which is completely unfair but um in her defense though I will say that um I love how her voice sounds in the numbers so so much yeah and um and I like the kids that they picked for her doing what comes naturally and I feel sorry for them that they didn't get their big Hollywood break um (laughs) Does anybody else have a team to pick for uh, Betty and Judy? Yes, Chuck and Diane. I'll pick Betty. Mm-hmm. I thought she was funny. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't think Judy Garland was in the couple of clips I saw. And I don't think she ever would have been. I love Judy Garland. Yeah. Not for this role. Yeah, I know. I, I kind of felt that too. Art, yeah, did you have something to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I also would take Betty Hutton. But one interesting thing was when I first watched the clips, my initial reaction before I went further into it was, who would believe Judy Garland as this Wild West person? Yeah. And then I watched the PBS special on, on Annie Oakley. And as you were saying before, turns out she was this petite woman. Who was, you know, yeah. and, and Judy Garland actually looked a lot, a lot more like her than Betty Hutton did. <clears throat> and with that kind of, you never, you're not used to seeing Judy with that kind of hair to that really like blunt uh, hairstyle that she had. And she wasn't the only one, too, because um, uh, she was supposed to be reunited with her co-star of The Wizard of Oz, Frank Morgan, mm-hmm. um, who played the wizard in The Wizard of Oz, was supposed to be her Colonel Buffalo Bill. And I believe filmed a little bit of the movie before he mm-hmm. died tragically of a heart attack and they had to replace him. Yes, Chuck and Diane. Yeah, he did actually film at least one scene that I saw where he was there. Yeah, um, I just happened to find uh, the name of it's Bruce Yarnell, I think, who was in that 1966 production. Yeah, I don't know who he is. <laughs> yeah. So having having uh, gotten to watch this, what do you guys think are the um, the reasons that this movie has has lasted um, such a long time in all of our memories? Yes, Chuck and Diane. Uh, I have to say it's the songs. I mean, after that movie, I don't know why, but I knew all the lyrics. I mean, it would carry me through forever because everything was fine in the movie and I really enjoyed it. But forever, I would know the lyrics. I mean, that's the way it was. (laughs) The songs we heard all our life. Right. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. James, how about you? I think I was just to spin off what Chuck and Diane were saying. I came to Annie Get Your Gun like the opposite way, where I was probably like a teenager, late teenager, and I knew all the songs, but I didn't know they were all in Annie Get Your Gun. So it's all of a sudden when you have I Got the Sun in the Morning and you have anything you can do and it's no business like show business. As you're watching it, it's like going to see a concert of like your favorite band where all of a sudden you know every single song. So I think that's a part of it is that 
these songs have become such a part of like the American tapestry of like American music theater, but also back in the day when songs would pop over, pardon the expression, to pop music. So all of a sudden, like right. songs we sang like in elementary school and then songs that my parents would sing in the house while we were cleaning on Saturday morning. I'm like, <laughs> oh, they're all in this one movie. That's incredible. It's kind of crazy to think that Irving Berlin didn't even want to write the music for this eventually mm -hmm. originally because he had never written a book musical before or music that that had fit within a story. He would mm -hmm. always do it for a review or something like that. Right. Yeah. And then um, Jason shocked me when he told me the other day that he wrote there's no yeah. bit that Irving Berlin, not Jason, that'd be hilarious. And um, that Irving Berlin wrote there's no business like show business in three days. Can you imagine? Three days for a masterpiece like that. But honestly, it's Irving Berlin and, and he was on Tin Pan Alley forever. So I'm yeah. sure that at that point he was like, my gosh, another <laughs> song about musical theater. Here we go. I'll roll this one out. Yeah, he did that one, Doing What Comes Naturally. And I, I think one more and uh, he just went away and, and they were like, just go think about it, you know, just, just think about it. And he mm -hmm. came back and just had all those amazing songs and handed it to them. And they were like, there you go. <laughs> and it, it came out that way because um, Dorothy Fields, who had the who had the brainchild of Annie Get Your Gun to write the book, was the one who um, went to Jerome Kern originally and asked Jerome Kern if he'd be interested in the project. But Jerome Kern died. So <laughs> Irving Berlin ended up replacing him and writing this piece. And then Jason also told me this this past week that when the music came out and when the show opened, reviewers thought that the music was the music of yesterday. They thought that it was boring and repetitive and the same thing that they had heard in the old past. Old fashioned for its yeah. time. And then early Irving Berlin was like, yeah, they're good old fashioned hits, which <laughs> they ended up being. Uh, Amanda, I, I don't know, did I see your uh, hand up earlier? You did. And Super. Like everyone else, I think the music is what made me love it forever. But also, um, I vividly remember the first time I saw it was at a place called Stages in St. Louis. And I was like... Yeah, maybe, I've been there before, yeah. You, yeah, it's a great theater. They do great productions. I was very young. I can't remember how old. And I remember the music, like I was transported. I loved it. And then the ending happened. And, you know, my parents raised a, a good feminist. Yeah. And um, I, my little my little kids, I was just saying, they're like, wait, what just happened? Yeah. And um, so then it, it became like my least favorite musical. And so then when I was like, oh, we're going to watch Annie Get Your Gun. OK, I'm, I can't wait to tell them why it's my least favorite musical. And then I watched the clips. I was like, oh, right. But I love this song. Oh, I love this song. And so then I was like, OK, it's definitely not my least favorite musical. Like, it's definitely one of my favorite musicals. I just wish it was, some things were different. I know <laughs> it is. It's always tough for me at the end of the movie to see her give up mm -hmm. um, for Frank. You know what I mean? And that is that's also something that they um, they switched in the revival, um, you know, where Annie kind of, you know, makes the shots and then, um, you know, throws the whole um, shooting contest to Frank. In the revival, he says, well, you know what? I, I know that you that you threw the, the thing, so shoot five more off, and then he misses five, and then they call it as a tie for the both of them. Um, and I kind of just loved that because it put them back on equal playing fields together. We had this argument the other night, though. I like the idea of Annie just always knew that she was better, and she was like, you know what? It's okay. But um, I agree, Amanda, this movie... Um, I ended up actually, long story short, 
Um, I grew up loving Howard Keel. Like I would have given anything for Howard Keel. He was my dream man. And I was heartbroken to find out that he um, grew up the same way that seven-year-old Elia did. And um, I loved the girl that I marry. I thought that it was so beautiful. And I dreamed of getting older and I dreamed of having manicured nails and looking beautiful and purring like a kitten on a man. And um, <laughs> and then- that Hasn't happened yet. Yeah, right? I, I never do that. <laughs> um, and so then um, I was heartbroken broken when I learned in my early dating life that behaving the way that Annie behaves in this movie does not make for a good relationship. And I was so heartbroken and so upset because not only was I majoring in musical theater at the same time with the dream role of Annie, that I was um, furious and angry at Betty Hutton. And I had a headshot that my parents had beautifully given me of hers um, hanging up in my dorm room. And I was furious. And then I ended up deciding that I'd minor in gender studies. And um, I, actually, I actually ended up pursuing um, a project where I taught children Annie Get Your Gun and used Annie Get Your Gun as a way to talk about um, how it is not okay that we refer to Native Americans the way that we refer to them in the movie, that it's inappropriate. And then also explaining um, what misogyny is to, um, to first through fifth graders by using this show. And then also describing to them how um, in The Girl That I Marry, a painting to them a picture of what history, um, history, sorry, of what history painted as a perfect woman of the time. And then talking about um, going decade by decade in musical theater and bringing up what um, beauty has been and then what beauty is now. And so I feel very similarly to you, Amanda, where I was heartbroken um, when I discovered that this movie does have a lot of themes that don't completely support women, but it was so hard for me to believe that a movie like this wouldn't support women when it's about a woman who is pushing the boundaries of her time. Yeah. I get a yes, Amanda, yes, please. Well, just, just like, uh, we're, we're on the same page. And, and I think watching it this time around, I gained an appreciation for just appreciating it at the time mm -hmm. and for appreciating this, like it was made before, like the movie is set even farther back. So it's like, it, it was a very feminist thing. Yes. Even suggest that a woman could be better at shooting a gun. Right. You know, so like that in itself was groundbreaking. And now, you know, it's we're like, well, obviously a woman can shoot better than a man. Why is she a weak man who can't acknowledge that? And it's like, well, that's just baby steps. Like we can't, yeah. you know, and that wouldn't have gotten produced. The, the, <laughs> right. That part of the story is true. You know, the part where she is just was just flat out better than him. That that is the part where you can be like, <laughs> that is true. That happened. Um, and I and I kind of love that about it. But um mm. Yes, Doug. Yeah, I'm um, actually. This movie was not an anomaly at all in Hollywood for the the 30s, 40s, and 50s. They, there were a lot of uh, strong women characters, you know, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Catherine Hepburn, but almost always they took the turn that this one does right at the end, where they give up the career to become yeah. Mrs. Man's Name. So historically, this fit in, and then the '60s came in, and the studios went out, and that began to change. Oh, wow. Thank you. I didn't realize that. Yeah, Ken. Yeah, I, I was going to say this uh, reminds me of um, in Wonderful Town. There's 
a song, who is it? Like 37 Ways to Lose a Man. 100 Easy Ways to Lose a Man. 100 Easy Ways to uh, Lose a Man. And I think it it is, I, I agree with Amanda, it's kind of like a pre-feminism that I know I'm better than the man. Yeah. And the audience knows it. So that's that's as far as we can take it here. That's a good point. That's, that's it. That's point. exactly what I was trying to say the other night. Thank that's you, Ken. That's a good point. All right. I just needed like nine other opinions and now I <laughs> now I get it. Leslie, yes. Hi. I know we're talking about the movie, but it's hard to forget that, you know, this was created for the Broadway stage. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it was created for star vehicles back then, you know, they they had something they wanted to write for Merman. Mm -hmm. The fact that the power for the ticket sales was a woman. The thing that was driving the success of the show, besides the fantastic score, was a woman who was a star. So I think that's part of when you're looking at historical perspective in general, and you're trying to have a conversation, this speaks to what you were speaking to, Amanda, as well, because you're dealing with younger people. You have to put it in historical perspective. Absolutely. I, I see that. They, you, you had your hand up? Yes. Uh, my name is Gideon. And uh, so I, I want to say I, my book club is just now reading the book Suffrage, which is a history of the suffrage movement. Yes. How many years did it take from the time there was the very first meeting of groups of women to the time the women got the, the vote? 72 years. Oh, good, yeah. you have the answer. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and unbelievable what conditions they were in the middle of the 19th century. Yeah. They, uh, they, they would, uh, a married woman would work all her money, all of her money would belong to her husband. Mm -hmm. She could not buy uh, a, a land or apartment or any real estate. Uh, conditions, not, and not only didn't she have a vote, she didn't have really much say. She couldn't be on a jury. So things were really, really, really uh, terrible in, in, from our perspective. But yes. that's, that, that's what history is. And so uh, here it's halfway, but uh, clearly uh, the past was very, very different from what we have today. Oh, mm -hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we have uh, Chris Pazunik says, Elia as Ruth Sherwood, please and thank you from Wonderful Town. <laughs> I would have to agree with him on that. Uh, Carol Gordon says, the smartest character is Sitting Bull. Yeah, I yeah. love that about, I love that about the way that Dorothy Fields wrote it. Um, today I was doing some research on the Lakota Sioux tribe um, that Sitting Bull was from. And um, Sitting Bull actually didn't join um, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show until he had already been up in Canada for a few years after the Battle of Little Bighorn. And the only reason that he came back was he could come back into the States if the clause was that he had to be part of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. And some accounts say that Buffalo Bill and Sitting Bull really got along. There's some really awesome footage on YouTube, if you look the two of them up, where they're signing to each other. I don't know. It's more than likely definitely staged. <laughs> but um, but then some accounts say that Buffalo Bill and Sitting Bull didn't get along. But one of, but one of the accounts that I read about today, which was... Um, from a newspaper article with an interview of Sitting Bull himself was that um, Sitting Bull 
in his travels, the American government was hoping that he would see, um, with the, the Wild West show, they were hoping that he would see um, the society in America and be impressed. And Sitting Bull actually was the one who was completely unimpressed because he was like, you have poor people on the streets that need food and money. And when you go to these cities, you see them. Um, so again, historical context. And then um, not only that, but he was disappointed in how Americans at the time um, treated their children. He, in the Lakota Sioux tribe, you would never hit a child. And he couldn't believe how often at the Wild West shows he would see a parent hit their child. And then to be so grateful that Dorothy Field in the 40s when she was writing Annie Get Your Gun chose to let Sitting Bull, even in the original version, he's a wise man who looks after Annie. And Annie and Sitting Bull had a great relationship. And Annie was furious when Sitting Bull, um, in actual life, um, ended up getting murdered by the Indian police at the time because of a mix-up. And she was so angry. And she said back then, Annie, get your gun in a newspaper article when Sitting Bull was um, killed, said that if he had been a white man, there would have been a national trial for him, but instead there was nothing. So I think that it's amazing that their relationship is still kept in no matter what version we see of Annie, get your gun, we still get to see um, the wise father figure that he became for her. Although one of the worst things that I learned today was that the guy who plays Sitting Bull in the movie is white. He's an Irish actor um and that like blew my mind today I, which mine too yeah i was i was just like who that was um hugh Earl, hugh spencer earlier did you have a, a, a something to say yeah going on what chuck and cindy said back in those days there was the hit parade and songs from annie get your gun as well as other shows would show up constantly on the hit parade Yes. No wonder we knew all the lyrics. In fact, I think every week we got a different one on doing what comes naturally. (laughs) (laughs) That's my only one of my few complaints other than the Native American stuff uh, with the movie is that just like I wanted more of the songs in the show, like Moonshine Lullaby isn't in there. Mm. Like that is just like one of the most gorgeous songs yeah. in the whole show and um what's what the they shot one? they shot betty hutton singing i got lost in his arms and it's beautiful it's honest and gorgeous and she has this gorgeous blue hat that just glows in the rainy dew and they didn't put it into the movie didn't make the cut um which is heartbreaking but again it's on youtube if you're interested and i got lost in her arms with betty hutton it's oh, beautiful oh, um uh, yeah. does, um, how does everybody, so we've talked a lot about Annie. How does everybody feel about Frank, Howard Keel as Frank? Um, because I didn't know about him. Ooh, I see some movement. I see some like big grand gesture. Leslie, you're, you had the biggest grand gesture. I think. <laughs> I'm in agreement with you. Is it your girlfriend or your wife sitting there? Uh, girlfriend. Girl, um, yeah, girlfriend. girlfriend. <laughs> Very nice. Who knows by the end of this? But. Yeah. Oh, keep no, talking. Keep talking. You can stop. You right can there. stop right there. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Leslie. Um, he's just in every film that he's ever in. He's he's one of those people that has stardust on him. He's one of those people that the camera loves. Yeah. And so it doesn't hurt that he's a good actor and he has a beautiful voice and he's singing for himself. You know, it's not somebody. Um, dubbing him like Marty yeah. Nixon had to do with so many wonderful uh, film musical theater musical film actresses. So I agree with I agree with your girlfriend there. Um, she he's he's just 
he's filled with sex appeal. That's what he is. Yeah. And and that voice is very warm and and expressive. And as over the as over the top as um, and I say that in a good way as Betty Hutton is in that movie, her scenes with him and just like uh, when she melts into his arms, you know, like I'm I'm kind of like I see one number and I'm like, oh, that's so just that's so much. And then like just her scenes with him are just so like touching and like mm-hmm. the way she looks at him, even though they really did not get along on the set of that movie at all. Um, right? Yeah. Um Howard Keel said that Betty Hutton was more interested in her career than um starring in a movie with other actors. Yeah. And I think the guy who played Buffalo Bill went up to Howard Keel and he he was like, she's stealing all these scenes from you. You know that, right? Like she's she's stealing them right out from under you. Just stir in the pot. <laughs> Colonel Buffalo Bill. Uh, what are you going to do about that? You'd think that the guy who played Charlie would do that. Yes, right. right. That was his job. <laughs> Leslie. And she, has some- yeah, she just to finish that that thought, she tried to steal by by chewing the scenery. And this was the discussion you had earlier that I didn't participate in, but I'm afraid I wouldn't be on her side. You know, I I I think it's it's not it's not um ensemble acting, shall we say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she was all she was also really worried because the the cast, she says, was very cold to her when she showed up to shoot the um the movie because they were all really hoping for Judy Garland, you know, they'd shot so many movies with her and they loved her and she kind of felt on the defensive, right? She wrote about that later. She did. But then what's funny is then when they did a screening of it later in her life, when she was alive, she didn't attend the screening, but um, all of the people who are at that screening who had been on the crew raved about working with her. Yeah. So, um, Betty Hutton, one night um, backstage a gypsy, I was telling Michael how much I loved Betty Hutton and um, Michael um, burst my Betty bubble by (laughs) telling me that Betty Hutton ended up in her older age having a pretty awful drug problem and she became uncontrollable on stage. Um, He had me watch a video of her playing Miss Hannigan in one of the revivals of Annie and she's out of control. Like I felt horrible for the little girl playing Annie in that production because you watch her on stage and she yells every single word so I have a feeling that she was coming from a um, family of artists because her sister was an actress too and um, I'm sure that she had a lot of pent-up fear of losing her career in a time when studios so quickly were picking up and dropping and I have no doubt that she was addicted to the stardom, because even when you watch her on stage, I mean, like, um, I think that the most honest performance that I've ever seen of Betty Hutton's, and I love Betty Hutton, I've tried to see everything I could possibly get my hands on of hers. The most honest that I've ever seen her be is in the um, reprise of There's No Business Like Show Business, when she looks at herself in the giant poster and she does the slow take and turn around. It is so honest for somebody who's so typically over the top and for somebody who's so um, chewing the scenery is the best way to describe Betty Hutton. But all of a sudden she just, she looks directly into the camera and they even, once the music cuts out in the movie, they hold it on her in silence for like four more seconds. And it's, um, I, I have no doubt after I learned about her very sad ending to her life, that in that moment, you can see her hunger for stardom and the sad risk of what became in her life, the addiction to the screen. You know, and then she can turn around and look at Frank Butler and sell this moment. 
<laughs> Somehow. I don't know how she does it. Um, I think it's time for one of my favorite questions. And I have yes. to preface this by saying um, that after Judy was fired, they had um, uh, Betty Garrett, Betty Grable, mm-hmm. uh, Doris Day was considered for the role of Annie and a very famous one, um, Ginger Rogers, uh, who said in her uh, autobiography later in life that she pushed really, really, really hard to play Annie. She said she would even have done it, um, signed the contract for a dollar um, to play to play Annie on screen, but that they came back with her to her and said... They told her, um, the producers at MGM told her that she should keep her high heels and stockings on and that she couldn't handle a role like Annie. Isn't that horrible? (laughs) I know. So, and even Ethel Merman, I think, was was briefly... Oh, yeah. No, Ethel Merman was so, she was so interested, but she had been such a nightmare to work with um, in the past, like the um, Anything Goes TV special. She was so disappointed with how she looked on camera that they were like, we're not going to invest all this money in you being... Annie for the movie and then um you be disappointed in the product and give us bad press so they completely cut her out of it crazy so let's uh do some casting for Annie and Frank uh does anybody have somebody from today or even from yesteryear who they would love to see Doug yes well if you count yesteryear I think they should have contacted uh Warner Brothers and gotten Doris Day I think she would have been the best and in fact, she did her own version of the Calamity Jane a couple of years later with Howard Keel. But I think she would have been the best standing. Yeah, mm. I, I do have to say, because, you know, if you do a little digging, you can find the entirety of the revival from 99 with Reba McIntyre. And as much as I loved Bernadette Peters in that role, Reba McIntyre killed it. And it, it was just because, like, it fit her. Like, it was like sliding into a pair of warm warm jeans. That's not it. <laughs> That's not the phrase. But it was like sliding into a pair of well-worn jeans. Well, like, oh, okay. I think it's, it's yes. Well, we found it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but she was just so awesome in, in in the role and just like changed it completely and everybody was like she should have gotten a special tony award for it like you know that it didn't happen sadly but so i've always wanted to see somebody who's you know a country music star in the role and i want to see young dolly parton do it so badly that would be that would be my choice for annie if i could go back mm-hmm. i guess you could do it nowadays why not i mean if that's a mermaid Granny, get it, your gun. Granny, get your gun <laughs> I, um, yeah, that would be my pick too. I think. Oh, that, really? Um, yeah. And then um, I have a Chicago actor that I want to play Frank Butler. I think that Brandon Springman should play Frank Butler. Oh yeah, he'd be a good one. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? <gasps> oh, Chris Pasternak. Um, I, I've used this one already, but I I can't help. Um, ever since we learned that he could sing so well, I would like to see Jake Gyllenhaal in just about every musical. He, he already played too, yeah. He already played a cowboy and broke back. He certainly could sing it. Um, he still looks so young. You know what I mean? If he feels like one of those people who hasn't aged today, and ideally, yeah. I think you'd want maybe a few more years on your Frank Butler. But um, oh, that's okay. I would, I would love to see him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We got we got a uh, Robin says Hugh Jackman as Frank. Oh, Hugh Jackman really would be good really one. good. That's a great one. Um, Megan Hilty, Leslie says. Oh, yeah. Leslie, did you know that Megan Hilty actually played it in Encores? 
um, there are, yeah, uh, uh, she played, and Andy Carl played um, Frank Butler in that yeah. version. There's a, there's a couple little clips on YouTube, if you check it out. Uh, Megan Hilty and him uh-huh. sing Old Fashioned Wedding. I think that's the one that's on YouTube. It's really darling, too. I love Megan Hilty. She'd be perfect for that. Who else do we got? Uh, oh, I missed one from Matt, Amanda that said that cow suit. I'm assuming <laughs> that's from a different thing than you, that you don't want to see a cow suit play Annie. Okay. No, no, that was, uh, I think Leslie said uh, he was really attractive or like something like sex appeal. And I was like, oh yeah, the cow suit in the first, in the show, no, it's business. Like I couldn't, that's all I was focusing on. <laughs> I mean, amen. The cow costume. Um. Let's say, oh, Carol Goodman from Little Wild Ghost says, we watched the outtakes with Judy Garland, who was originally chosen to play Annie. She looked ill, and they said mm-hmm. she was too sick to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, yes, Paz, Paz, did you have something else to say? Um, well, Megan Hilty, because I'm thinking about the Lifetime movie she made about it with a different Broadway and Chicago actress. And uh, if Jesse Mueller has never played Annie Oakley, I would... I would watch that in a heartbeat. That's crazy. She'd be perfect. I'd be perfect. Yes, Amanda, please. Well, so I had a question. Mm -hmm. Um, We all talked about how, um, what's her name? Who played Annie? Betty Hutton. Betty Hutton, thank you. You're welcome. Um, How she was really over the top. And I felt like she was giving a performance that was meant for a really big stage, not Mm -hmm. film. And I'm, I guess I'm wondering if you feel or if anyone else thinks that like the performance of Annie differs, like, should be different on film versus on stage. And like, should she always be that exaggerated or like what's what's the essence of Annie that remains the same in the film, in the stage? And then how is it different? Wow, that is such a good question. As somebody who's wanted to play her, I, I feel like I should throw the question to you. I think that um, there's a challenge that comes from playing a role that has such an iconic movie. And I think that she left such a taste in people's mouth for um, what they're looking for when they come to see Annie Get Your Gun. I think that what all of the revivals that we've um, mentioned tonight have shown, though, is that Annie Annie Get Your Gun was a star vehicle for Ethel Merman, and it's a star vehicle for whoever plays Annie. And I think that um, one of the lessons that I've learned, at least, from acting has been that this is the perfect example of when you come to play this role, you are not being paid to be Betty Hutton play Annie. You're not being played. You're not being paid to be Reba playing Annie. You're being played. You're being paid to play exactly who you are as Annie. And I think that you do need somebody with a strong personality, which is why I think that um, Jesse Mueller, Megan Hilty, um, all of these people that we've mentioned in the most recent moments, um, they're all people who have strong quirks and they're all people who um, have strong personalities. And I think that as long as you bring that to this role, I think that it's important to, because Annie, realistically, all of her songs are a um, variety of adorable rhymes where it's constant, like joke stanzas, you know, where each little verse has a quick little quip in it. And each of her lines within the show is like straight line, joke, straight line, joke, straight line, joke. So you need a comedian 
who can bounce between being completely honest and can also be completely on top of it. Because when you have songs like Doing What Comes Naturally, where the format is like A, B, A, B, and then you have You Can't Get a Man with a Gun, where again, it's A, A, B, B, you constantly are having to stay on your toes to give a new joke with the same exact context to the audience um, to keep them on their toes. So I think that you need somebody who's going to come at it from being perfectly honest and creative and comedic. So I do agree with you that Betty Hutton's performance is definitely made for a giant theater. And whenever you put it on in a room, you can't help but look at the screen because she's just too much. <laughs> um, but I think that in the context of any show, I think that she does need to be somebody with a lot of personality to keep the audience on their toes. Otherwise, I think that these beautiful Irving Berlin rhymes get wasted when you don't have somebody who keeps them fresh for the audience. Michael has a really uh, good point here. Um, shocker. <laughs> uh, he asks, should Annie be age appropriate because she was 15 uh, at the time that she met Frank? So Frank was like, what, in his mid-20s? 25. When they he, was, had... they, he was exactly 10 years older than her. And, um, you know, they, 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 they kind of stretch out their romance and their battles but frank and annie got together very quickly <laughs> number one and there wasn't a whole lot of he was very behind her um as as taking over the lead um for the B buffalo bill show right away mm -hmm. there wasn't a whole lot of like back and forth mm -hmm. um but i guess more to his more to his point do, do you think she should be that young for i mean that would add a whole new level Goodness. especially in this day and age does anybody have any thoughts about that yes Hugh. This is an interesting case of film versus stage. Mm -hmm. Now, Betty Hutton was 29 when she made this. And because of close-ups and all that, I think she looked older. But I saw the 1966 revival. Merman was 58. Oh, you did? How you, you didn't care in a yeah. TV. It was just a thrill. Wow. Oh, that, that makes so me cool. happy to hear. I love Ethel Merman. Doug, yes. Well, to kind of counter that in a way, for this film version, it was, I, you asked a long time ago what, what was successful about it. And I think one thing is it was so outdoorsy and athletic and horse riding. And, you know, Betty Hutton was very agile and physical, and she could take over from the shots where the stunt woman was on a horse or whatever. And yeah. I can't imagine Ethel Merman being able to do that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, why do you think I was I was thinking about this? Why do you think that Judy Garland, like she's still a household name and somebody just as amazing as Betty Hutton just didn't quite make it to that point where like everybody knows her name? Yeah. Leslie, what do you think? Just to answer your question, I mean, you're talking about almost apples and oranges because Judy Garland had a, a tremendously, first of all, long career from the time she was 12 until the day she died. And secondly, she had um, recording that was enormously successful yeah. as a, a recording artist, as a radio artist, as a concert artist, as a film artist. Mm -hmm. So when you look at longevity, you're looking at films, of course, because they play in perpetuity, but you're also looking at the rest of the career. Yeah. If you look at somebody like, if I mention the world, word Hildegard, I don't know how many people here are gonna know who she was, <laughs> My crowd, yay! Yes, this is. But your that's somebody who had a a career in clubs and recordings, but nothing to. Yeah, you know, she made one film in England. Nobody knows who she is. 
There's no legacy for that. So I think in answer to your question, there's a tremendous difference between the kind of career that Judy Garland ended up with and the kind of limited career that Betty Hutton did. That is a really good point and kind of the plight of the actor, don't mm-hmm. you think, sometimes? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to have to wrap up here soon, but I'd, I'd like to ask, you know, any final thoughts about um, your favorite parts of the films, things that worked that didn't work for you? Anybody have any partner shots? <laughs> yeah, Chuck and Diane. The thing I thought about, there was like no segue between certain scenes. You're here and somebody, and all of a sudden you're riding on a horse. Yeah. <laughs> There's nobody to tell you that was coming. <laughs> yeah. Kind of out of, everything kind of was out of context, but it worked. Right? The, the cinematography, like a lot of people said, it's just basically like, he pointed the camera at them, especially for the character numbers. He just pointed the camera at them and was like, go. You know, there's not too much like, you know, the art in that. I love the color of this movie, like the technicolor yes. color of it. You just don't see movies like that anymore yeah. where like it looks larger than life and it looks um, like a fantasy. I also love how Betty Hutton in the beginning of You Can't Get a Man with a Gun completely addresses the camera. Like it hasn't happened yet in the movie and she just looks yeah. right in yeah. and she's like, here and there, is this song. There's nobody else there. She's nope, just, she's just like, she's here's the camera. down everybody. the barrel and, uh, and there's nothing. Right? Did, you, did yeah. you catch the part where they cut, she's about to start singing and then they cut? Yep. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Breaks my heart like, every what? time. Yep. Just, so <laughs> yep. how, they, how do they cast the Indians today? Well, I think that um, it, it would be important in casting to cast actual people of Native American blood and people who understand the culture. Um, my dream, I'll share this real quick to end this with you. Number one, thank you all so much for attending this. My heart is beaming. I've wanted to work on Annie Get Your Gun since I was little. And for the past five years, I thought, you know what? Maybe there just is nobody out there that cares about this show. <laughs> and tonight you have all sparked a new flame within my heart. So thank you. It means the world to me. Um, my dream is to rewrite Annie Get Your Gun with the same book. And I want to write a book. Um, I want to ditch Dorothy Fields, even though I love her and I'll give her credit, but I want to write a book that actually has to do with the real story of Frank and Annie. And I want it to have to do with, um, I want to use the same exact music, just to put them into the new context and try to make it more of the actual story that happened, right? I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I have a loose plot so far. I've heard it all. Yes. I've heard the whole thing. It takes about 90 minutes, roughly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, my dream come true would be that they would cast the Native American cast appropriately with people who really understand the culture. And I think that is completely doable. And I think that we could do our country a great service by telling the true story of Annie Get Your Gun and giving Frank credit for being a supportive husband, giving Sitting Bull credit for um, the immense work that he did for this country on trying to um, find peace within all of us. I think Buffalo Bill deserves credit for um, him trying to rewrite parts of history. And then I think that... um, Annie deserves credit for the wild feminist work that she did in her time. And so I can't wait for that day. When I think we your mom might be crying over there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you guys so, so much. I can't tell you like how much 
you know, us not being able to do what we what we do best right now, getting to talk about musical theater with you guys is just fantastic. And it makes my heart so warm to have had this discussion with all of you. High five. Michael Weber, it's all you, man. We hope you enjoyed this Movie Musical Monday podcast and that you'll join us live to participate in our next discussion. You'll find information about upcoming events on our website and how you can join in the conversation. Theaters across the country need your support now, more than ever. We hope you'll consider a donation to Porchlight Music Theater today. Just go to porchlightmusictheater.org. Until next time on Movie Musical Mondays, I'm Michael Weber. Michael Weber.